You are listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It is so much more than radio. It is your community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon and I am so happy that we get to spend the next hour together as we take a voyage around the arts. There is something of a lovely symmetry on today's show. We have two takes on Dickens' A Christmas Carol. One by Greenhouse Theatre Project and the other at Ararock's Lyceum Theatre, neither of which we can see in person, but both of which are employing some innovative techniques to enchant and engage us from our sofas. We also have two authors on the show, the lovely symmetry here being that the first time both Kira Harris and Jill Orr were on Speaking of the Arts back in 2019, they were on the same show. And this week, they're on the same show again, both with new books, both of which are a bit of a departure from their usual genre, and both of which are firmly in the holiday gift category, as long as you have friends who share your sense of humour. So, as it is once again a packed show and I want to make sure we have time for everyone, let's head out. I thought we'd bookend the show with Dickens, so our first stop today is with Greenhouse Theatre Project. My very first introduction to Greenhouse Theatre Project was in 2011 when two lovely ladies came to see me at the Columbia Art League to ask if they could perform A Christmas Carol in the gallery. Sure, I said, sounds like fun, but where will you put the stage? How little I knew of Greenhouse Theatre's techniques back then, or indeed how thrilled and relieved my future self would be that I said yes. Greenhouse Theatre projects, visceral, powerful, surprising and often gut-punching productions have become such a mainstay of theatre in Colombia that had I turned them away, I would have spent the intervening years feeling like Dick Rowe at Decca Records after turning down the Beatles. But that first production of A Christmas Carol was not to be their last. They revived and adapted it for a performance at Bluebell Farm in Fayette back in 2017. And this year, it is back at Bluebell Farm, adapted for the times in which we find ourselves, but without an audience's corporeal presence. And here to fill us in on Greenhouse Theatre Project's third iteration of Charles Dickens' timeless play is its executive director, founder and the mistress of innovation, Elizabeth Brown Palmieri. Good morning, Elizabeth. Good morning, Diana. Thank you so much for that intro. (laughs) You know, I have to work up a good one for you. (laughs) Wait, did you just compare us to the Beatles? Because because thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) So you've spent the last nine months away from a physical stage, mastering the art of squeezing your energy into a tiny camera. And now suddenly you're performing with two other actors in a space that is wide and high where you can move, be visceral, unfettered by the bounds of a small green light. How does it feel? Oh, it's amazing. It's <laughs> exhilarating. It is. It's, um, I think that all those old habits come back and you find yourself in a space with people that you trust and their family. Ian and Jason and I 
we performed this show together in 2017, and we've performed countless shows together over the many years that um, they've been part of the Greenhouse Company. And yet, um, we find ourselves in a completely new situation yet again, which I think is something that Greenhouse looks for in an experience, both for ourselves as the artists, but an experience, a new experience to offer to the audience as well, especially when you're doing work like Dickens or any of the classics, you know, Shakespeare, Chekhov, whatever, they're done a million times over. And so the beauty and joy of, of continuing to perform them comes out of finding these new interpretations and ways in which you can find your way down new little alleyways within the words. And so I really think that, you know, on this week, we, all three of the actors were tested for COVID. We have been rehearsing in masks the entire time. I have, I'm working with a very bare-boned crew because I just wanted to minimize the amount of bodies and uh, breath (laughs) in the space. And so we're kind of, uh, I don't want to say overmaxed or, or whatever, but but we're pretty much all working on on high gear, and we're working very quickly. I gave us um, kind of this two window or this two week window of time to get through all of this because again, I wanted to kind of minimize the amount of time that we're all together because I asked a lot of the the company, I asked them to basically refrain from seeing people outside of their own home if they if they can um, in hopes to protect this group with everything they can you know what I mean and I felt like if we can get through this in two weeks with no bumps or bruises along the way then that would be <laughs> amazing in these times of COVID so all all three of the actors uh, we were tested this week and then removed the masks to film on Thursday. So very exciting, kind of scary, all of those emotions, but wow. I mean, it's amazing to see an entire face and it's, it is a, it is a bit of a freaky thing. And we've been really um, upfront and forward on our social media with letting the audience and people know how careful we really have been. And the fact that we, the actors were tested shortly beforehand and everything, because I I don't want anyone to think that we're taking this lightly or that we're being irresponsible. So that's, that's kind of where we're at right now. I know you hate giving anything away, but there are obviously some things that you would like to divulge about the production, because that's why you're here. So what would you like us to know? Oh, yeah. So the really fun thing about this iteration of A Christmas Carol at Bluebell Farm is when we performed it in 2017, it was so magical because we had a fire going in the fireplace and a fire going in the bonfire outside. And when you entered the barn, the lighting was very dim. There are these beautiful uh, candle sconces on the walls everywhere. And you would hear the music that our musicians were playing. We had a fiddler and a guitarist and they're playing holiday music and you would smell the apple cider that was brewing. And you just felt like you entered into the warmth of the holiday spirit. And that was by design. I wanted everyone's senses to kind of be on overload and that they felt the production itself was wrapping them, you know, in this cozy mm-hmm. plaid red blanket, you know. And <laughs> um, and so that was 
what I was striving for last time. This time around, we are working with Tiny Attic Film Productions. And so that is Chelsea Myers, who's done a lot of collaborating with us in the past. And she's wonderful. She's a documentary filmmaker, as well as other things. But um, she's incredible at the documentary work. And she knows how to follow a subject. And she knows how to freestyle, if you will. And so that was, you know, she was someone that I knew could take on this challenge in in the way that I wanted this filmed. I didn't want this to be neat and clean and every scene set lighting adjusted every single time. That was not my interest. I was trying to um, keep as much authenticity of performing a live production. And what I mean by that is for the actors, I think it's so important when you're doing theater to have that sense of urgency. And really the only way to keep that is to perform it in one take to start it at the beginning. Like you're starting a race and you run until you finish the race. I wasn't interested in running to the next scene, taking a break, running to the next scene, taking a break. So, you know, I mean, those were conversations had between myself and um, the film team along the way in figuring out how we were going to do this. And um, so it all, it all worked out, you know, but uh, how we're actually like setting it up is because we're filming it, we're able to use so much more of the barn than we did before because we had it set in like the main bar space with the audience in this lovely round oval that was been closing us in. And uh, we had this giant antique wooden table that was actually like in the barn. And I asked, you know, if we would be able to use it last time. And they said, yes, you know, we'll just stabilize it for you. It was amazing. So we're using that again, but um, we're also able to use a couple other areas inside the barn. One of which is this really beautiful, um, they use it as a bar when they have events out there, but it has a fireplace and it's, uh, you know, the wood panel on the wall and it's just so gorgeous with these sconces and so that is the Cratchit home and all of the doors in the barn are these big wooden sliding doors and so those kind of become a character too in the piece as we move along you know every time something is revealed you know the door slides back and then we see something new so there's you know there were these elements of magic that I didn't want to lose at the same time I'm I'm of this like Brechtian style where I I don't mind when the actors change on stage or, or you see, you know, like you see behind the curtain, you know, I kind of like that. So I told Chelsea, you know, if ever in, in a shot, there's an actor, you know, in the background that walks by or is changing or something and it's not in focus, but it's just in the back. I said, don't, don't move away from that. Cause I, I kind of like that. The, the backstage is, is still kind of open and all around the action within and so, yeah, I think that it's, it, I think it's a really cool process. And I, I hope that people enjoy this take on it because like, you know, I've said before, I was talking to Eric Danielson from the Tribune earlier this week, and sometimes it just kind of feels like you're inventing the wheel or whatever. Cause it's like, who cares? You know, we're in a time of COVID. This is the time to experiment. All bets are off. It's like, <laughs> what are people going to do? You know, tell us, Oh, well that could have been done differently or that should have been done differently. It's like, how should it have been done? I mean, this is how it should have been done because this is where we're at right now. 
So as an audience member, we are not seeing it being filmed live. We are seeing a pre-filmed recording that you are making available at certain times on certain dates. Is that correct? That is correct. So initially, I had a crazy idea because I've been doing Zoom theater, you know, for the past several months, which is live. I really love the fact that even though it is online or on Zoom, it's still live. And so you still have that kind of energy and that kind of urgency and drive. And so at first, I was trying to think of a way if we could actually perform it live. So, you know, just plugging the camera into the laptop, she would follow us, she'd be in a wheelchair being pushed around by my AD, you know, I was trying (laughs) to think of all these different kooky, creative ways that we could capture it. And it it might look a little frantic, I wasn't quite (laughs) sure. And honestly, what would put the brakes on that idea was I just wasn't 100% on the internet out at Bluebell Farm. It it seems pretty good, but at the same time, I would want it to be 100% safety. And so that's when I decided to go this route. But I guess the negotiation was, I will do it like this if we can do it in this one take frame. Tell me about the basket of holiday cheer quickly before we close. Oh, sure. Well, this was your idea. Come on, Diana. (laughs) So for anyone who doesn't know, Diana is actually on the board of Greenhouse (laughs) Theatre Project. Thank you. You have all these amazingly creative ideas all the time and input. But yeah, the holiday, the basket of holiday cheer is an add-on, kind of a special thing that we're offering on Saturday the 12th and Saturday the 19th only. And it is filled with all of these Dickens-themed sweet and savory uh, goodies from some of our favorite local places, Beatbox and Cherry Street Cellar and Candy Factory. And there's a gentleman in town who makes these amazing shrubs that are 100% organic that you can mix with either, you know, bourbon or cider or whatever. So these baskets are so, I'm just like, my mouth is watering thinking about it right now. We're talking, you know, mincemeat pies and hand pies and plum puddings and mm. mold wine. I mean, all, all all of your childhood favorites, right, Diana? Exactly. Exactly. See, I have these ideas, but then you take it to the nth level. Oh, well, you know what? You know me, you just have to plant a seed and then I, I start a fire, but I don't know how you plant. I don't know how you start a fire by planting a seed. <laughs> this is only available for local people. How local is local? Oh, well, it just you have to pick it up on Saturday. It's a pickup at Yoga Soul outside on their deck on Saturday between the hours of 4pm and 5pm. Um, so if you don't mind, if you're out of town, if you don't mind driving into town, but yeah, the baskets are and, and they're also a design for like to support these businesses too. This isn't like a fundraiser for greenhouse. This is just something that we we wanted to incorporate and we wanted to collaborate with those chefs. Perfect. Well, Greenhouse Theatre Project's production of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol will be streaming on Vimeo starting on December the 12th, that's tomorrow, and the 13th, Sunday, and then the following week, Thursday the 17th through Sunday the 20th. On two of those dates, Saturday the 12th and the 19th, if you live locally, you also have the option of purchasing a basket of holiday cheer with Dickens-inspired sweet and savoury snacks and drinks. But you will need to buy tickets and put your holiday cheer order in no later than the Thursday prior, which might be a bit tricky for this weekend, given that it's already Friday. You can find tickets and more information at greenhousetp.org. And Elizabeth Brown Palmieri, thank you, as always, for taking time to chat. Thank you, Diana. Take care. Happy holidays. Mince pies are such a peculiarly British thing. 
Americans always look at me slightly oddly when I mention mince pies until I explain that they don't have any meat in them. Think little covered pastry tarts filled with currants, raisins, golden raisins, candied peel, butter, sugar and spices. Back in Dickens' day, they would have had minced meat in them, probably mutton, but that had gone out of fashion by the late 1800s. The modern mince pie is a yummy, sweet Christmas treat. Anywho, on with our tour. But first, a question. Do you do any of the following things? Make an involuntary noise when you sit down. Pretend you understand text abbreviations sent by millennial co-workers. Fail to have recognised any SNL musical act in the past year. Send texts that have perfect grammar and punctuation. If you nodded yes to any of those, then keep listening. This next segment is for you and me. The author Jill Orr is usually accompanied by her fictional sidekick, Riley Ellison, whose adorable sleuthing adventures unfurled in four books, the last of which, The Full Scoop, came out earlier this year. But today, Jill is here with her new book, How Not to Be Old, even if you are, which seems like a subject Jill Orr would know nothing about. She is dazzlingly pretty and is the kind of person who you think, how is she old enough to have two teenage children? But given the sales the book has already picked up, number one on the Amazon bestseller list in the categories of internet and social media humour, ageing parents, and cultural, ethic, and regional, ethnic and regional humour, Is it ethnic or ethic? Cultural, ethnic and regional humour. And is the People magazine's editor's pick as the quintessential holiday gift? I guess Jill Orr must be older than she looks. Good morning, Jill. (laughs) Good morning, Diana. Thank you for that nice intro. (laughs) Is it cultural, ethnic and regional humour or cultural, ethic and regional humour? I'm assuming it's ethnic. I would have to double check. (laughs) Amazon's categories are hilarious to me. They get really, really narrow. So it could be ethic. I don't know. I mean, I guess only they know. How do you feel being in the aging parents category? It's not the best. Not going to lie. I'm desperately trying to keep that secret from my children because if they happen to see that, it's all over for me. They'll never, I mean, not that they like, you know, think I'm remotely cool now, but it would definitely be over for me if they saw that. <laughs> well, I'm going to read a little a wee snippet from the book blurb. It says, old, in capital O, small l, small d, suggests you have life experience. But old, all caps, means you won't shut up about it. Old, capital O, small l, d, comes with a quiet confidence envied by youth. But old, all caps, comes with bitterness and a rigidity that youth cannot rightfully stand. How not to be old will clue you in on how a slight adjustment in behaviour and thinking will help you more fully connect with today's world and the people who will be in charge of your nursing home one day. So with four successful books under your belt, all of which were written from the point of view of a 20-something protagonist, you clearly are able to step into the mindset of a much younger person. Yet something was nagging at you about the age we choose to be. So tell me the backstory of this book. Well, you know, it's funny when you put it like that, (laughs) I'm able to clearly see honestly, like in this, I am thinking this for the first time. So hopefully it's coherent thought, but I'm able to clearly see that I think one of the reasons why I wanted to write How Not to Be Old is because in my mind, 
I'm much younger than I actually am, you know? <laughs> we all <laughs> and are. It's, right, exactly. <laughs> and so, you know, I think that, that that's part of middle age is that you still, you know, there are moments and days where you still feel like you're 25 and then you'll walk past a mirror or um, an actual 25-year-old and it'll be like painfully obvious how not 25 you are. And um, <laughs> I just started uh, noticing that a lot of my conversations with my girlfriends we're just kind of about this. And I've always been of the opinion that if you can't, if you can't laugh about your life, then what's the point? So I guess I decided to channel that into a book. You write that while growing old is a privilege, becoming old is optional. What percentage of your friends would you say have chosen to become old? Oh, gosh. Well, I think this is a moving target. And I think that's one of the pieces of feedback I'm getting when people read this book is that they're like, oh, my gosh, it's like you were spying on me, you know, (laughs) because I think all of us after a certain age, we have both parts to us. You know, I I mean, believe me, I'm never happier than when on a Saturday night I'm in my pajamas at nine o'clock on my couch. So that's kind of an old person thing to do. But then I also try to remain young in other ways. So I think <laughs> I think it depends on the day and it depends on what you're doing. <laughs> Your book covers a good number of generational divide topics like cursive writing, Venmo and phoning people. Were your children collaborators on these topic decisions? A hundred percent. They absolutely were. They were my first focus group, my Generation Z focus group. One of the funny things about uh, in the book, I reference an artist called The Weekend, and I spelled it as one would normally spell The Weekend, as if you were referring to like you know the time period. And they were like, uh, "Mom, there's no e." Like apparently, he spells his name W E E K N D, and I was so old, I didn't even know that. So <laughs> they were very helpful. <laughs> I don't know if that's an old thing. That might just be a listening to music thing or reading about music. Because if you only ever hear The Weeknd and you never see it written down, I mean, you know. That's true. Although they knew it, so. (laughs) So talk to me about tattoos. Well, you know, it's the funny story behind that is, I mean, I, I personally don't have an issue with tattoos. I don't have any tattoos either, but it's not something that gets my blood pressure going. But I do notice that um, I'm just going to throw my husband under the bus. He kind of, as we've gotten older, I'll notice that he just can't stop talking about how many tattoos people have. And when we go, like we were in Disneyland and he was, he just kept pointing them out and he's like, oh my gosh, look, look at that tattoo. Look at that. And he, it was like the craziest rant. And my kids actually were making fun of him for it. And so I started paying attention and I started realizing that there is a there is a significant segment of aging friends that I have that are sort of tattoo intolerant. And I think it's a generational thing. <laughs> you list a couple of things like, have you heard yourself say like, you know, do you realize what that's going to look like in 20 years? And why did you feel the need to get that permanently etched on your skin? I mean, have you heard friends say that to oh, yes. people with tattoos? <laughs> well, not probably to them, more like behind their back, which is probably not the best, but yes. <laughs> the other topic I want you to talk about is the the phone call thought catalog of typical millennial Gen Z. And I don't think it is just millennial and Gen Z who will no longer pick up the phone. I definitely know plenty of Gen Xers that are like, you want me to call somebody? <laughs> <laughs> How did that make it in? Well, that was another... Um, it, you know, is inspired by my kids. And then, um, so my, my kids, I'm convinced, you know, and they're, they're 19 and 16 now. And 
they pretty much just don't know how to talk on the phone. I mean, they, they will, but I have very, like a very low confidence level that if they needed to get a job, you know, I don't know, answering in a call center somewhere, like I think it would be a pretty steep learning curve. Their generation just doesn't talk on the phone. And so what I ended up, when I was, was thinking about writing that, I did a mini focus group of mostly millennials. I would say, I would say older Gen Z and millennials who work at the gym that I go to in Columbia. And I took a poll and I asked them about their phone call habits and what they would think if like their parents called at night without a reason that they, you know, an anticipated reason of why they were calling. And, and it was pretty much who died. <laughs> Of the topics that you have in the book that, you know, your children helped you to decide upon or, or choose, what was the one that was most surprising to you that you're like, oh, really? That's a thing? Oh, that's a good question. Um, now I have to look at the book. I feel, <laughs> I, it, I'm one of these people that once I write something, I sort of forget that I've done it. Um, well, I'll tell you that the one of the first things that you know, observation that kind of kicked off the whole thing was stop complaining about your service and restaurants, which is step one in how not to be old. And that was something that I didn't even realize I did. Like I would never, I, I never complain to servers. I never like, you know, send my soup back in an angry rant or anything like that. But I guess my husband and I will complain about how loud it is or talk about the air conditioning hitting us wrong or, you know, talk about, wow, this music, I don't, I don't know about that. And I, I, we had no idea we were even doing it. And it was my son, actually, who was like, wow, mom, you, you sure talk about how loud the music is in here a lot, you know? <laughs> and I just had no idea. And so I started paying attention. And I'm like, oh, my God, he's right. That is something that people in my generation and older than me really just do start to do. We just complain a little bit. Even if we're not being mean about it, we, we do have these little criticisms that come up. <laughs> Tell us about your collaboration with the illustrator, Kate Wong. Well, that was that was one of the most fun and interesting parts of putting this book together. So I wrote the book about a year ago, almost exactly, I would say last January. And um, because the process of putting a book like this together, because it's illustrated, it just takes more time. So normally the way it goes is I write a book and I make it as good as I can possibly make it before I show it to my editor. And because at the same time that I was writing the book, the illustrator had to be coming up with the illustrations for the book, they needed my words before they were like 100% ready for viewing. So I actually wrote this book, believe it or not, in a Google Doc, in a shared Google Doc. And so they could see the whole entire team. I mean, it's still like my cheeks are red right now. You can't see me, but <laughs> the, the whole entire team could see me in real time working through the language on this book. And I mean... It, you you talk to writers all the time, so you know, like we can spend three weeks on a sentence and constantly tweaking and changing. And anyway, everyone got to see it. I, it felt like I was, you know, standing naked on stage. So it was it was a very interesting experience. That part of it was, um, but seeing what the illustrator Kate Wong and she um, lives in the Pacific Northwest, and she's just hugely hugely talented. And I really believe she elevated this book to a way, you know, in a way that I could not have done with just words alone. She's, she's pretty amazing. 
Well, maybe you could read for us uh, your letter, your plea for clemency to millennials <laughs> and Gen Z. I would love to. So this is actually how the book ends. Dear millennials and members of Generation Z, consider this a plea for grace. We, the members of the older generations, don't mean to annoy you with our constant tech questions that could be easily Googled or long random lectures that meander like the mighty Mississippi, which by the way is home to over 260 species of fish. We do it because we're trying to forge a connection with you. We secretly envy the way you so easily interact with things that confound us, like air printers, online streaming services, and Billie Eilish's hair. And we feel like we can learn from you, given a little patience on both our parts. We also implore you to remember that while we might not know much about what the latest slang is or what's considered cool these days, we do know what it's like to be your age and to face the challenges you face. It's on us to respect that the world is different today, but it's on you to realize that some lessons are timeless, and a lifetime of experience is not for nothing, even if our voice texts have the syntax of a Russian pirate from the 1600s. So please be patient with the boomers and Gen Xers in your life, and especially the silent generation folks who are still around. Realize that most of the time, we're trying our best. Sometimes we're just being bitchy because, as you'll come to realize, aging ain't for wimps, but mostly we just want to get along. And if you can't summon your understanding in the name of grace, then at least do it in the name of karma. Because as crazy as it seems, you too will be old one day, if you're lucky. Sincerely, your ancestors. <laughs> I love it. Did your children read that and, and look at you more kindly? No. No, I don't think so. <laughs> Well, there you I have just, it then. <laughs> yeah, I'm just kidding. My my kids are great, but yeah, no, I think uh, that ship has sailed. I think their their opinion of me is fully formed, book or not. <laughs> I have to say that I am pretty happy being older. Being young is really confusing, and I don't miss that. But yes, there probably are many lessons in the book for me. But I am trying, as you advise, to be someone who not only ages gracefully, but who does so joyfully with an open mind and an open heart. And let's just say that some days that's easier than others. <laughs> <laughs> I agree 1000%. Jill Orr's latest book, How Not to Be Old, Even If You Are, is out now and available from Skylark Bookshop. Jill, always a delight chatting with you. Stay young. <laughs> Thank you. You too, Diana. This was fun. Our next stop today, thanks to the magic of our times, is the other side of the world. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, we're boarding passengers seated in zones E and F at this time. Ooh, that's us. Come on. We're off to Australia. Kira Harris's debut novel was a luscious, swashbuckling, enchanting work of fantasy set in the fictional world of Aquilian. And there is the promise of six more books in the series. But betwixt book one and book two, Kira left Columbia, moved to Perth, Australia, and published a beautifully illustrated picture book called The World is Full of A-Holes. And thanks to the magical technology of this world, Kira is joining me from Western Australia, and it sounds like she is sitting right next to me in the studio. Hello, Kira. Hello. Thank you so much for having me on the show. 
Kira, I am such a huge fan of Aquilian's Key and its gorgeous protagonists, Bastion and Felix, that I am slightly annoyed that another project caught your attention <laughs> as I would really like to lock you away in Aquilian so that I can get back to Bastion and Felix, for whom I am pining. How did this book rise to the top of your to-do list? Yeah, so this is this has actually been a side project of mine for years. Um, I started it towards the end of my first draft of Aquilian's Key. And um, basically what happened is I had a bit of a falling out with my oldest brother. He um, he called me and he just had a moment of being a big a-hole, you know, as we, we all do. But it, it really hit me hard because growing up, he was always a big guardian for me. And so when it happened, it kind of just floored me. And I I couldn't write for a little while, and I just had to take a step back. So because I was so frustrated that when I went to write, I was just too caught up in this whole thing. So I just put that energy into this book, which is when it kind of started to bloom and then got over the whole thing and moved on to my series, which is definitely my um, my big project. And it just... Every single time I encountered an a-hole or talked to a friend who encountered an a-hole or saw something in the world, I just kept returning to this book. And it got finished, and it was just always kind of on the side. And then I was like, I should just I should get this illustrated and taken care of. And so I, it took me a while, but I found an amazing illustrator. And then and then the pandemic happened, and. I felt like, oh, wow, I cannot bring out a book right now called The World is Full of A-Holes when everyone is suffering and kind of coming together with this big pandemic. And then all of a sudden something happened where it kind of took a turn and it seemed like it was the most appropriate time ever to bring out this book. So it it, is, it has just been kind of, it has not capitalize my attention except for uh, probably these last two weeks just kind of getting the whole thing out but um yeah Aquilian's Key and Archive of the Night Watcher series is definitely definitely my number one. So when you first were frustrated with your brother and you sat down and, and began to bash this out did you think I'm writing a book about this or did you just want to get your frustrations down on paper? I just wanted to get my frustrations down on paper to begin with but it was also Actually, to be honest, I think I did kind of, I just had a lot of thinking about it, a lot of stewing. And I started to think, you know, this is this is not just something that I have to deal with. I mean, this is something that everybody has to deal with, you know, from from so many people throughout their life. You know, and I just, I did think this is a book, like I need to, I need to start writing a book about a-holes because... <laughs> Because I feel like when we, we do encounter one, you know, there's this, this automatic feeling of kind of being a victim and, and maybe it's us. We're the ones that kind of inspire this and, and stuff. And, and it does really get us down. But the truth is, is that everybody encounters a-holes. Did you make it up with your brother? I did not. No, he, he actually didn't know anything about it. Yeah, he, he had no idea. And the book, when I released it, was just before his birthday this year. So I sent it to him as his uh, 40th birthday present. <laughs> that might have been an a-hole move, Kira. <laughs> I, I know, I know. But 
But I had a very lovely letter that went with it, and he really appreciated it and loved the book. So I think in the end. So you have made up with your brother now. I have, yeah. And I and this book really helped, actually. Just writing the whole thing and giving it to him, I think, has helped the whole process. But yeah, we are, we're on good terms now. Okay, well, that's a relief. <laughs> now, you have, like me, you've traveled extensively around the world. And you note in one of the passages that a-holes, they reside in every country too, not just the ones we weren't born into. They're in every culture, regardless of beliefs or creed. Do you think we only notice them in our own culture? Like if you were in, if you were in Russia, do you think you'd be like, yep, that is a Russian a-hole right there? <laughs> I think, I think we, we notice them everywhere, but I think the human brain has a tendency to put things into categories, right? And I think when they encounter an a-hole, a lot of times, rather than just going, oh, that's an a-hole, they'll go, oh, they're an a-hole because they come from that category. And, you know, these bad eggs kind of make people think that whole categories or groups of people that come from that same category are a-holes. And that's that's one of, been one of the big inspirations of this book is, you know, like if, if a Russian traveled to America or American traveled to Russia and they gave a really bad impression or happened to be an a-hole, those people could totally think that all Russians or, or all Americans <laughs> are a-holes. You know, I think that kind of thing happens a lot. And the less experience people have with other cultures and and other things, I think the more there is a tendency to kind of jump to that conclusion. So I think I think it's always important to remember that was, you know, my big thing with this book is that I think it's important to remember that a-holes are kind of their own category, you know, and they are absolutely everywhere. Because, yeah, ev- everywhere that I've traveled, I've encountered that, you know, there's a-holes absolutely everywhere you go. <laughs> and there are guardians absolutely everywhere you go. You know, it doesn't matter where you are in the world. And there's not more or less anywhere the more I've traveled and the more I've experienced, the more I've realized that people are really people. And even with our cultural differences, there's so much that's just the same as us as humanity on a whole. Well, I mean, you you have the second part of the book is about the world is also full of guardians. Did you feel it necessary to have this kind of balance in the book that you had the bad, but you also had the good? And really, the probably is more more good than there is bad. Definitely. I think those bad eggs do really taint people to to thinking, you know, that the world is full of a-holes and then that is the dominating thing. They do dominate, you know, in our minds because they stick out so much. And I think it's it's just so important for people to remember that even though they really stick out and have a very loud voice or, or you know, really impact us, Uh, or can ruin our days, you know, even to that small extent can be enough. Um, You know, there's, there's actually more people in the world that are out there to help you and to look after each other than there are the people that are, you know, making that loud voice of trying to bring you down. You have a list in the book, the characteristics of of bad eggs, let's say. And so you say they, they trump on feelings, they single out, they lie, they cheat, they do dirty dealings, they exploit kindness, they always put themselves first, they don't care if they make someone else's life worse, they tell people one thing when their back is turned and say another, they make jokes at someone else's expense. They, and then you say the last one is, which I'll come back to in a minute, insults fathers or mothers. <laughs> 
And if you are of a particular political persuasion, it's hard not to read that as a list of some of a certain president's failings. Were you, was, that, <laughs> was that part of your timing? No, that wasn't. No, no. I mean, I mean, it's hilarious. I mean, that's why I just I felt like this book was the absolute perfect time for it to come out. Because it felt so much like just just especially in America, you know, everything that we're dealing with, you know, it's perfect for that. But it's it's really just that universal truth of um, those are the characteristics of a-holes. And anytime you encounter a person that's either just woke up that day on the wrong side of the bed and happens to be on the a-hole side of themselves or a person who's, you know, like that on a more regular basis, you know, do tend to fall into those that category list. And so I wanted to be able to, you know, point out to people that category and how you can recognize a-holes. And, you know, the more we kind of make a-holes their own thing of like, it's not this group, that's not them coming from this or having this belief system or these ideals. It's, it's that they treat people this way. They do these things and that they are an a-hole and that is the group that they belong in. Well, and and let's let's be honest. On some days, we are all that person. Exactly. <laughs> so it it resides in all of us. Let me just ask you about that last bullet point on that list: insults fathers or mothers. Where did that come from? <laughs> well, it it mainly came out just originally because it worked perfectly within the rhyming scheme of the verse. <laughs> and, <laughs> And also because I just feel like, you know, when you're younger, that's something that comes out a lot where people are teasing people and they're trying to single them out and they'll make mom jokes or insult where you came from or something to do with your family and your lineage and all that kind of stuff. So that's kind of where that came from. Well, let's have you read a wee passage for us from the book. Excellent. The world is full of a-holes. I'm sure you've encountered one or two, and if you haven't, you will, no matter what you do. It's inevitable that someone somewhere will be rude and disrespectful to you. Sometimes it will even be those you're closest to, double rude. And sometimes it won't. Sometimes it will be someone in passing or someone you've only met that day. Sometimes it will be obvious, and other times you won't recognize an asshole straight away. They're found in unexpected places or hidden behind phony social graces, lurking round every bend, waiting for their moment to offend. So be ready for when they do, because they'll do their best to do the worst by you. And sometimes they'll be successful too. Lovely. Thanks, Kira. So before we end, tell me a little about the illustrations in the book. You worked with Nick Henderson. Tell me how you got connected with Nick. Yeah, it was it was fabulous, actually. Originally, I had talked to Andy Elkerton about doing the book, who's a, a very um, well-known children's illustrator, and he was really excited about the project. But his, his publisher convinced him that because he illustrates children books, doing one with the word a-hole in the title probably <laughs> wasn't a great career move. So I was, um, it took me a while but I found Nick on Instagram, actually. I was searching through illustrators, and I came across his page and just absolutely loved his artwork. 
it's so beautiful and I just his style is awesome and it's it's just one that really connected with me so I sent him um, a copy of the book and a message just saying hey like I love your work and would would love to work with you if you're interested and he wrote me back saying that the book made his day and that he was really excited to work on the project Fantastic. Well, it is absolutely beautifully illustrated. The publication timing of this book is perfect, of course, for the holidays. It is a wonderful stocking stuffer, but I would feel slightly nervous giving it to somebody lest they thought I was suggesting they were on my naughty list. So (laughs) give with caution. Kira Harris's new picture book, The World is Full of A-Holes, can be ordered online from Skylock Bookshop and costs $19.95. Kira thank you so much for dropping in from the covid free side of the world which at this point in time feels like a fantasy world compared to where we live thanks so much kira thank you so much for having me our last stop today is back in missouri specifically the gorgeous hamlet of ararock let's step inside the lyceum theater It is 177 years since Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol was first published, and within a few months of its release, Dickens' novella had been adapted for the stage. I imagine that if Dickens were to drop in on almost any of the productions of his commentary on poverty and humanitarianism in any of the intervening years, he would feel pretty much at home. But this year... As we have taken a precarious leap into the unknown, all theatre has had to be reimagined. And if Dickens were to drop into the Lyceum Theatre in Ararock, he would happen upon a production that delivers shivers upon shivers, and in which the ghostly and the virtual swirl together with fantastic intent. And he would probably feel like his play had been catapulted across time. And the master of this production, where the ghost of theatre past and the ghost of technology present meet, is Quinn Gresham, the theatre's producing artistic director, who is here with us this morning. Good morning, Quinn. Good morning, Diana. I don't think I should interrupt anything you're saying. I just want you to keep talking about the show. <laughs> and I will not spoil it uh, <laughs> by interfering. That, 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 that was so wonderfully said. Well, thank you. I'm curious, what would you ask Dickens if you suddenly turned round and there he was sitting in the front row? What's your most burning question for him? I have a question for him, and it is one that has been rolling around in my mind uh, over the past few weeks as we have been adapting, readapting his wonderful work to a new medium. And this is geeky stuff. But in his original novella, as the ghost of Christmas present is departing and making way for the ghost of Christmas yet to come, uh, he introduces Scrooge to two children hiding under his robe, and they are ignorance and want. Scrooge asks, are they yours? And the ghost says, no, they are man's. This boy is ignorance. The girl is want. And it really, for me, has always been the gateway to understanding what Dickens was writing and why he was writing it and 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 the, the cautionary tale at play. Interestingly, uh, Dickens, up until the end of his life, toured the world performing a one-man reading of A Christmas Carol. And I I have a copy of that text. And within that text, Charles Dickens himself took out the characters of ignorance and want. And I think in doing so, completely decimated his original story. And I want to say, Chuck, what were you thinking? That's my big question for Charles Dickens. 
Have there been scholarly books written about this topic or, or have you discovered something? Surely there have been. I, I can't say that I've gone that deep, but uh, surely they're out there. Well, A Christmas Carol at the Lyceum Theatre has become a mid-Missouri tradition and you have truly become its raconteur. But this year you had to work out how to convert all your usual stagecraft and magic into a virtual experience. And so I want to take a sneak peek behind the scenes with you. And you did give me a little unprecedented access to some clips. And I was honestly blown away. I don't know what I expected but this was so much more than I expected. So let's start with your own onstage location in the middle of a circular desk. Tell us about your setup and, and why you opted for this design, this position that you put yourself in, in, in the middle of the stage. There were a lot of elements that uh, combined together to, to create the design, uh, which, uh, Ryan J. Zern Gable, our resident scenic designer and technical director, he, he's really the master of that invention. But what we talked about was the need to get, uh, our audience not only into our theater, but also on stage with us. This is an experience, uh, as we've all wrestled through the pandemic that Though I'm sure we all approach it in different ways, it is something that we do all share. And I wanted to make sure that this didn't feel like there was a great separation between actor and audience, uh, that the audience was swirling around the action. And so Ryan ingeniously created this device that allows us to circle the stage and not only give the audience uh, their typical view of the proscenium and the action unfolding, but also occasionally to put them on stage and see where they would normally be sitting. It is a 360 degree view of theater life that I just think is very interesting. Now that was one, one portion of it. And uh, another piece of this was that we're, we're telling a story that was written to be read. And so we created a sort of uh, library circulation desk piled up with, with various uh, antiquities and, and many old books and the old book that we are uh, breathing life into, uh, obviously, this month is Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. So those were all the things that kind of combined to make this, uh, to make this approach a reality. So when the lights come up as an audience member, we see you, the narrator, on the stage in the middle of this circular, like you say, this kind of library-style circular desk. And upon the desk are books and contraptions that create the sound effects. You've got Marley's chains and doorbells and a rope creaking. And then suddenly, eerily, behind you, floating heads start to appear as if we're seeing your tail unfold in the air around you. And so my question is simply, how are you doing this? <laughs> well, we, we're very fortunate to have an incredible family of theater artists who have really missed the opportunity to create on our stage. And when I pitched this concept to many of them, I, the cast is, I would say, almost 40 people. Every single person said, absolutely, let's do it. How in the world do we do that? <laughs> and I have to tell you, even when I initially reached out to them, that I wasn't quite sure. And it may very well be that a week from now, what I'm doing will be completely different because I've changed my mind a thousand times. 
It's very possible. Uh, but what, what we settled on was that if we could capture the narrative voice that Charles Dickens writes so beautifully, but also capture the essence of the characters and do so without costumes, because you start to shortchange yourself if you pretend you're doing the thing that you normally do, because you aren't. We wanted to put the emphasis on the words. Now, that said, we made sure that the ghosts have uh, a little more uh, metaphysical sauce on them. <laughs> they are costumed, uh, as expected, and they provide something outside the world of what we're typically doing with the other actors. But essentially, in, in, to answer your question about how we do it, each of the actors has recorded their scenes and they have done that all by themselves. This is not in any way a Zoom experience. This is carefully edited and put together so that when Don Richard as Ebenezer Scrooge and Bob Elliott as Jacob Marley have that famous scene uh, in which uh, Jacob Marley says, you will be haunted by three ghosts, those two gentlemen we're not actually talking to each other. They were talking to a memory of each other because they've done the show together for a couple of years. And I just put those two things together and uh, it, it really is actually working pretty darn well. It is in no way a substitute for the work that we normally do, but it is, it is the thing that we can do uh, safely and effectively right now. And uh, we're all having a really good time doing it. And are the actors each acting in front of a green screen in their home? Or are you like are you cutting around the edges of their little heads to <laughs> make them look like they're floating in space? It's a little bit of both and a little bit of other things that you haven't even offered. Uh, every one of these actors uh, comes at this with a different set of technical uh, gifts. Some of them don't even know how to turn the camera on their phone on. Uh, others have green screens and have been doing this sort of thing for years. And uh, with each of them, we we just step through the process and figure out what we are capable of doing. Uh, Don Richard, who I just adore, he's he's played Scrooge for us for the past couple of years and is a very good friend, has recorded all of his material in the closet of his living room because it's the only place where he could find the darkness and privacy that he needed to to live <laughs> out these scenes. And it is the most ridiculous setup you've ever seen. You'll never see it because what you see during the show is uh, a perfect moody uh, representation of, of Ebenezer Scrooge. But to get to that point, it has gone from the ridiculous to the sublime on an almost daily basis. I think there is just such huge kudos to the actors who are acting these scenes totally in isolation and in a cupboard with nobody in front of them, where usually you would be in rehearsal with your scene partners. Like you're saying, Don's scene partners are simply the ghosts in his head of past performances. And he has to get all of that energy down this little tiny hole in a camera and out the other end. And so that idea of the energy flow that usually exists between an audience and the actors and how they are having to reinvent that energy is really fascinating. How do you direct that? Well, you know, I, I will say that the most of my directing work has been uh, mechanical in terms of this process. I, I've explained to each of the actors where their scene partners are in their imaginary landscape so that when I put them together, it looks like they're speaking together. And we, we, for those people that are new to our production, uh, we did speak more specifically about the, the, the key pivotal moments in each scene. But 
Don knows what those are. So I don't, we don't have to have that conversation. Uh, Don plays it out as he understands, uh, I understand it. And that works out really well. We're both on the same page, uh, and it, it, it all comes together nicely. We've had a few reshoots, uh, with a bunch of the different characters just to make sure things make sense. Uh, and, and then there is the challenge of large scenes. Now I, I, I want to say too that anybody that has seen our production understands that there are hordes of people on stage at some points um that that's not the case here but we do have scenes for example the the cratchit family dinner there are six cratchit children there's mom and dad and then there's scrooge and the ghost of christmas present so that's 10 people figuring out a way to get 10 people who are not actually acting together make to make it look like they are is a terrific terrific challenge and and uh really appeals to my, I don't know, my, my, my OCD-ness and wanting to get it, wanting to get it just right. Well, that brings up the question of children. I mean, obviously, you can't produce A Christmas Carol without Tiny Tim and all the Cratchit kids. And whilst it's one thing asking adult actors to face their empty living room and perform their lines, that's really a big ask of child actors. Or, or is it? I mean, it, it, because I think as we grow older, we many of us lose the ability to get lost in a fantasy world. True. That when we were children, you know, I, I had imaginary friends that I had <laughs> long ranging conversations with. <laughs> Um, Me too. And, right. I, I, and I, a few of them have stuck around, I'll tell you. Uh, <laughs> but I think for, for, for kids, it's not as much of a leap. Adult actors, and uh, I'll put myself in this category, really rely on the communication between a scene partner and themselves. It's that whole acting is reacting thing. And this removes that opportunity and uh, is, is an incredible challenge and one that every single one of our cast members has met. It's really, really thrilling for me every time I get a new video. Unfortunately, all the videos are in, so that part of the process is over. Uh, every time I got one, I was just tickled to see what these wonderful artists were capable of doing, even in a vacuum. How many hours do you think you have put into the alchemy that is going into the stitching of all of these components together? I'm happy to say I have no earthly idea. <laughs> uh, I, I know yesterday I started around uh, eight in the morning and I wrapped up around 11 o'clock last night. Now, there are other things that come up in between. But I, I, I've said this to many friends uh, over this past almost year of no theater. Uh, keep in mind that the last on stage production that I worked on was a Christmas Carol in 2019. I have uh, really missed creative projects. And I know that everyone has had so many obstacles and so many difficulties far more serious than that, than that. Uh, but, but that, that is a big part of my world. And in the absence of that, I, it was really becoming difficult for me. And so having this creative project, although it is something completely new sort of genre defying in a lot of ways. It has been a real pleasure just to work on trying to tell a story, even if it is in a way that I'm learning about as I'm doing it. Well, I just loved the little clips that you shared, and I, I cannot wait to see it. The Lyceum Theatre's production of A Christmas Carol will be available for viewing on Tuesday the 22nd and Wednesday the 23rd of December at 7pm. This is a benefit concert, and therefore the ticket price is whatever you would like to donate, with a suggested minimum of $10. And I know it is rated G, but 
the little clips I've seen tell me that I am going to be hiding behind the sofa cushions on more than one occasion. So, <laughs> Quinn Gresham, thank you so much for all the work you put in. This is very exciting. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much. This week, our local theatre world lost one of its dear patrons to COVID-19, an art supporter and an actor on many local stages. She was a friend to many of my friends, and my heart is sad for their loss. For them, this week's show is in memory of Diana Long. Thanks again to my guest today, Elizabeth Broughton Palmieri from Greenhouse Theatre Project, authors Jill Orr and Kira Harris, and Quinn Gresham of the Lyceum Theatre. Thanks also to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can find more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Columbia! Columbia!